A big thank you to Pastor Ben, who last week blessed us abundantly by sharing with us about how we can connect and how we can relate to God as our Father. And how he opened up the scriptures and he shared with us the, the beauty of knowing him, not only as Father, but as, does anyone else remember? What were the, the categories? He said, as Father and as Yes, as our patient trainer, as our loving disciplinarian, and as our faithful friend. Well done, well done. And I thought that was, I thought that was awesome in regards when he shared those truths with us. And in keeping with that theme of God relating to us as our Father, I wanted to actually close out the series that I began several weeks again about the, the how-to, about how to live as a child of God, about how to live as a follower of Jesus or as a, as a young man, as the text puts it. As we move in today in the message that I've titled, How to Live as Grown-Ups, How to Live as Mature in Christ, How to Live as One Who Knows the Father. So I've asked my sister Pam if she's still around, Oh, there you are. Hello, my sister Pam. Uh, she's going to come. If you open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to read the passage again, verses 12 to 14. And if the microphone is around, I will, I will, or you could, you could scream it into this microphone, I guess. Uh, there we go. Thank you very much for that, Pam. Hello. Okay. All right. So let's turn to John, 1 John. Chapter 2, and we're reading from verses 12 to 14. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Thank you very much for that, Pam. I would encourage you to read all of 1 John. The reason being is as he writes to these three different stages, it is not just this passage that we've been looking at, but it is in the context of the whole letter. That's something we're going to look at today. So if you'd like to bow your heads, let's open in a word of prayer and see what the Lord has to share with us today from his word. Father, I thank you. Thank you that we can call you Father because of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for bringing us out of darkness into your marvelous light because of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can cry out to you and you hear us when we ask anything according to your will because of your son, Jesus Christ. And now, as we, as your children, come before you, we ask that by your spirit, you will open up the wonderful truths found within your word to not only encourage us, but to challenge us, but to convict us and to change us. Please minister to our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
what imagery comes to mind when you think of the idea or of the words children? What's the pictures that flood your mind? Do you think of impulsive? Do you think of disobedient? Do you think of in need of guidance? Do you think of emotional or dependent? What is the imagery that comes into your mind when you think of children? On another point, another point, what is the imagery that comes to mind when you think of the words youth, young man, young woman? Do you think teenager? Do you think arrogance? Do you think confidence? Do you think Jenna or Olivia, who has the gall to have the birthday on Father's Day? I don't, I don't know. You're not taking that day away from me, Olivia, okay? So... But do you think of, of those sorts of things? Do you think strong? Do you think bold? Do you think reckless? What is the imagery that comes to mind when you think of young adults, youth? So when you hear the title of fathers, what is the imagery or the pictures that come to mind when you think of fathers? What does this mean for you? See, more often than not, and I'd say pretty much 100%, if not 99.95 of us, when we think of the word fathers, our father comes into mind, of what our dads were like. Do you think of fathers, when you hear that word, as boring, as distant, as busy, as fun, as strong? What is the imagery that comes to mind? I know that as a youngster, boring, distant, strong, busy, that, that would describe my dad when I was a youngster. As I've gotten older, I had come to appreciate the use of words such as wise, skilled, experienced, knowledgeable, street smart, those are ideas that came to mind as I grew older and I saw my dad from a different light, especially when I became a parent. Actually, one of the things I did many years ago would have been about 1999. I called my dad and I said to him, I'm sorry. I, now that I was a parent and I had children of my own, I called my dad and I said, Dad, I just, I just want to call and say sorry. Sorry for how I treated you as a child. Sorry because of the hard work you did as a parent. And all my dad said to me, son, good job. <laughs> yeah, I love you too, dad. But you don't really sort of understand or appreciate your parents until you become one. So when I read this passage and I see how John is writing to this stage of growth called fathers, I want to read it again from verses 13a and 14b. I'm going to read it with me. I am writing to you fathers. Why? Because you know him who is from the beginning. And what's interesting is he writes the exact same description again. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And strangely enough, that is what separates the stages of growth written here in this passage. The ideas in this word fathers speaks to a knowledge that they have and that they have attained through a long period of time and experience with someone. 
See, the distinguishing factor isn't what is known like the young man. What does it say about the young man? That you are strong and, you, and the word of God lives in you. That's how he describes it. And then he writes, I write unto you children because you know the father. It's a different one there as well. And it's differing from this one because a knowledge of the father is the understanding of family. It's the understanding of belonging. I understand who you are as my Abba, my dad, my Abba father. Here, father, the father says, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And the distinguishing factor here is not just what is known or how it is known, but who is known. And who is known is described as him who is from the beginning. Where father to little children talks about belonging, talks about family, talks about parentage. Him who is from the beginning talks about position, talks about authority, talks about power. That's the difference between the two. One is, I know I am loved by my father. The other is, my father is a big deal. He is in charge. He is in complete control. That's the difference between the two. And you go from this of I'm loved by my father to this, my father is a big deal through the time of not only knowing him relationally, but experiencing him personally and interacting with him mutually. It is a living relationship that is discovered, nurtured, and experienced over time that takes you from here to here, that takes you from loving and appreciation to being in awe of his greatness. That's the difference. Because there is a huge, there is a huge difference. There is a world of difference between knowing about someone to knowing them personally. The young man knows about God because the word of God lives in him. The father knows the one who wrote the word. I remember Pastor Roger saying that to me, Pastor Don up in the Central Coast. He said, it's one thing to know the word of God, it's another thing to know the God of the word. It's a huge difference between the two. That's why he says you know him who was from the beginning. To know him who is creator. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. It was darkness and the spirit of God hovered upon the waters, above the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God as creator, to know him who speaks things into existence, to know him who is sovereign, the one who comes with power and rules with a mighty arm, according to Isaiah 40 verse 10, as knowing him who sustains all things. What's John chapter 1 verse 3 say? That without him nothing was made that has been made as knowing him who reigns over the nations and is seated on his holy throne, according to Psalm 47, 8. 
and to know him who is preeminent, who has the supremacy. Actually, if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, because all of those aspects of his sovereignty, of his, creati- of his creativity, of he who sustains, it's all summed up in these verses. And why he is preeminent, we read, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together and he Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He might have the preeminence. Why I like this is because Paul writes here of the expression of his relationship he shares with the Lord. He is writing these words of praise, these words of acknowledgement of somebody he knows, not someone he knows about, but someone he knows personally. David does the same. Several weeks ago, Jono read this passage from 1 Chronicles 29. If you have your Bibles, turn there because it is a great passage. From verses 10 to 14, we read this. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Verse 13, now our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. David's praise, like Paul's, is an expression of the relationship with someone he knows. It is a relational knowledge that is present. It is a personal encounter and experience that he has lived. It is an interaction with him mutually that David has had the blessing to experience all throughout his life. These men knew God relationally, because it is a relational knowledge that is bound or connected with personal experience, as well as mutual interaction. See, these three things, the the whole idea of relational knowledge, the whole idea of personal experience, and the whole idea of mutual interaction, these three things are are like, have you heard of a mouse, uh, not a mousetrap, 
Irreducible complexity. Have you heard of that term before? Irreducible complexity. It basically means this, that you take something, and once you remove something, it no longer works. It can no longer function. It's irreducibly complex. A mousetrap is a classic example of what something that is irreducibly complex. Uh, it's just a piece of wood. You have a spring, you have a lever, you have a latch, and you have the bait, the trigger. You take any one of those things away, it no longer works. That's the whole idea with us maturing in our walk from a child to a young man to a father. Mutual interaction, personal experience, and relational knowledge, that is irreducibly complex. You cannot take one away. They're all required. It's a holistic view of our walk with the Lord. For example, David, as a shepherd boy, with a heart after God's own, experienced the beauty of knowing God, of knowing Him personally. The Psalms are full of His declarations of God's greatness and involvement in His life. You read how in His anointing in Samuel, in 1 Samuel 16, for, as He is anointed king to His trust, when He takes on a giant in 1 Samuel 17, for his attempted murder continually by his father-in-law as he is hunted down. And when he is chased, when he runs to find refuge in, uh, in the hands and foreign lands filled with enemies. In all of those times, in 1 Samuel 19 to 31, during all of those times, David knew and experienced personally God's provision God's continued protection, God's undeserved favor. Even when David fell and committed adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, what does God do? God calls out his sin and says, this is what you have done, prompting David to read, I encourage you to read Psalm 51. His psalm and song of repentance as he cries out to God and, and asks for forgiveness. And then he experiences God's compassion and God's forgiveness and God's mercy. He come to know all of that personally. He experienced it personally with the Lord. And even in that, while he experienced God's forgiveness, he still experienced the consequences of his sin. So when David writes things like this, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge, Psalm 16.1. He writes from experiencing God's safety. When he writes, when I have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, in Psalm 51, he writes from experiencing God's mercy, personally. When he writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, it's because he experienced God's provision personally. He's not writing theoretical ideas. He's writing from the experience on his own life. One of the greatest blessings I got to experience at Bible college is that a number of my lecturers were missionaries who lived out in the middle of, whether it be Indonesia or Papua New Guinea or South America, in the middle of nowhere, calling out, people, calling out to people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when these guys talked about the promises of God, they spoke from personal experience. 
And I would listen to these lecturers and know that it is not theory, that it wasn't some idea that they read about in a book, but it was a reality that they had lived. I saw men who knew God. I saw women who loved God personally because they experienced that love in the hardness of life. Such is the case with Paul. You look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 27, and we have a list of everything that he had gone through. How he, you know, he had been in prison, he was flogged, he was exposed to death again and again. He was five times he was whipped, 40 lashes minus one. Three times he was beaten with rods, he was pelted with stones, he was shipwrecked, he spent a night and a day in the open sea. He is in danger constantly from rivers and danger from bandits of fellow Jews, from Gentiles of the various cities and various countries and various oceans and from false believers. You read in verse 27, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And yet, and yet, for all that he went through from being locked up to being shipwrecked, been harassed for all that he went through, he came to this conclusion that all things work together for good to those that love God. Romans 8.28, whether locked up in prison, whether roaming free planting churches, he understood this, that God would supply all his need according to his riches and glory. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19. Through all of that, he come to understand that. Through all of that, he come to understand that his life was poured out like a drink offering, having fought the good fight, having finished the race, having kept the faith, 2 Timothy 4. Words that are birthed from his relationship and experience with God personally. This was not theory. This is what, what it was... The depth of relationship, the depth of trust and reliance, these men knew God. They grew with God as they walked with him. David grew as he journeyed with the Lord. And this is the point of today's message, that David just didn't get there instantaneously. That Paul didn't just arrive at this stage of maturity right away. This reliance didn't develop overnight. Why do you think in Hebrews we are told to run the race with patience? Because it's not a sprint. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's an endurance race. It's a steeplechase. It's a cross-country cross journey. And that's a terrible example to use because I hate running. But that's what it is. That's exactly what it is. It took one step after another. It took one act of trust after another. It took one promise claimed from the Scriptures after another. It took one mistake after another, one confession of sin after another, one passage of scripture memorized after another, one day of fellowship in the saint, with the saints after another, one time of prayer after another. It's, it's a continual moment by moment, step by step, 
walk with the Lord. That's what it is. That's what it means. That like David, that like Paul, that like Peter, we walk with the Lord and allow him to reveal to us where we're going wrong and then do something about it. It's like I I remember... um, so, as a lot of you know, I'm trying to lose weight, okay? And I was, I was listening to this guy speaking. He's one of those fitness gurus. I don't do fitness things. Like, I, like, I like, usually look at old people like Arnold Schwarzenegger and things like this. But a comment was made that he said, how we always say this, I'll start eating properly tomorrow. I'll start, I'll start eating better on Monday. I'll start eating, I'll, I'll start, you know, exercising this then or the other. You notice how we always do that? And Arnold just said this. He said, uh, start at the next meal. Start at the next meal. You want to start eating properly? Start the next meal. What's your next meal? Lunch. Start then. What's the next meal? Dinner. Start then. If we're always saying, tomorrow, what do they say? Tomorrow never comes. And that's what it comes to us. We are in this stage, this journey of being, whether it be young children, whether it be young men, whether, even when it be fathers, that we make the choice now. Confronted by a temptation, you make that choice to trust in the Lord. That when confronted with an obstacle, you make the choice to trust in the Lord. When you're sitting there weighing up whether to watch TV, you make the choice. It starts then, moment by moment, choice by choice. So we need to understand this, that we need to embrace the moment we find ourselves in right now. As a dear child, as a young man, and as a father. Because if we make that choice now to meet with God, then God in turn will meet with you. And you see this within the scriptures. And what I find amazing, Abraham and Sarah, where did God meet with them? Well, near the trees of Mamre in Genesis 18. Joshua near Jericho, the Lord reveals himself as an angel with a drawn sword. Joshua 5 verses 13. 15. Or Samuel, when he was a boy in the house of the Lord, and the Lord calls out to him in 1 Samuel 3, how God reaches and meets out with you where you are at. Where you are. You look at what the Lord Jesus did. Where did Jesus meet Matthew? Matthew Levi. At his workplace. While he was doing taxes. While he was taking in taxes. Where did Jesus transform Zacchaeus? In his home. Where did Jesus deliver the demon-possessed man among the tombs? Where did Jesus encounter Paul on the road to Damascus? See, he wants to meet with you where you are at. Whether it's the little child, whether it's the young adult, whether it's the father, he desires to meet with you no matter what stage you're in. And this is the beauty of 1 John. When John writes these things, that no matter what stage you are at, the truths found within not only one John, but in the whole of Scripture applies to you now, where you're at. That you can read the the reason for John's writing this letter, the blessing of 1 John chapter 1, 9, which says what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That doesn't matter how old you are in the faith. That promise blesses you now. 
that when you read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, that we might sin, he says, do not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Well, that applies to you now, no matter what stage of growth you are at. The command of 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And we are told that we have to keep ourselves aligned with God's will. Well, that applies to you now, no matter what stage you are at. The hope of 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that says, When Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That applies to us now no matter what stage we're at. The promise of 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That applies to you now, no matter what stage you're at in your faith. The assurance of 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, that says this, that if you have the Son, you have life. And if you don't have the Son, you do not have life. That applies to us now. Even 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, that if we ask anything, if we ask anything according to his will, what? He hears you. That doesn't matter what stage you're at in your Christian faith. It's God desiring to meet with you. And, and I think the difference between being a child, between being a young adult, and being an old person in stages of maturity, I think the old person with the people that I know and meet and see within our church, I see people who know in regarding how to live as a grown-up, who know how to apply the promises, the commands, the instruction, and the truths of God's Word to your everyday living. That's how a person lives as a grown-up. Someone who takes responsibility. Paul writes this, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That is not talking about meaning trying to earn your salvation. What he's saying is this. He's saying, take responsibility for your relationship with the Lord. You walk close to the Lord. I can't blame you for where I'm at with my walk with Jesus. When I stand before Jesus and Jesus says to me, why didn't you live this way, Joe? Because of Kenny. No. Remember how you say to kids when someone says, and I know parents have done this, and I know you've done this if you're a parent, that when your siblings fight and one of, your, one of the children says, you know, he hit me. Why, why, why did you hit him? Why did you hit him? Oh, he made me. And it's always the reason. What? So what? He grabbed your hand and made you, made you hit him. No. Well, in that case, he didn't make you. You chose to. Take some responsibility, boy. No, just, no I don't do that. But all I'm, all I'm saying is that, that's, what they, that's what they say. But we do this all the time with the Lord, don't we? And that's what I think what separates a child and, and a young person and, and a father, where the father, like David in Psalm 51, takes responsibility. Takes responsibility and, and then seeks forgiveness, seeks repentance. And wants to make sure that his relationship with the Lord is, is protected. Because the Lord wants to. You have to understand this. The Lord wants to meet with you. He wants to connect with you. He wants to love on you. 
That's what he wants to do. As a non-Christian, it's the Lord reaching out to you through others. If you don't know Jesus, whether you're here or at home, through, the circum- through your circumstances, through your conscience, the Lord is reaching out to you to show you how much he loves you and the extent of that love to, to come to earth and die for you. That if you just believe in him, you could be born again of a spirit and have a friendship with God. As a baby Christian, a dear child, instead of trying to rush your growth, instead of trying to rush your growth as a baby Christian, embrace that. Embrace the fact that you don't know everything. Embrace the fact that you just know that you are loved by God and you belong to him. Embrace that, yes, and then be open for him to work within your heart that the Spirit can continue to shape you and, and mold you as you develop those good habits, as you, as you walk within the structure of that relationship with Him, to get to know Him better. As an older Christian, you know, as a young man, let's be wise in our zeal. Let's be tempered in our action, that while boldness and strength can be beneficial, without wisdom and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, it can result in something that tears down and pushes people further away from God instead of drawing them closer. And as a father, as a mature Christian, the goal is to know him even more. What does Paul write in Philippians 3.10? A person that we would look at as the epitome of a man who knew God, what does he say in Philippians 3.10? That I may know him. That even as a man who had walked with and experienced relationally and, 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 and interacted with God mutually, wanted to know him even more. That we would know him better. To know his voice. To know his ways. To recognize his promptings. To know the difference from the will of God in comparison to my own will and what I want. I think that's what identifies somebody that would be mature in the faith. So embrace the stage you're in. Recognize what he is doing in you and take the time to know God relationally. Take time to experience God practically. Take time to interact with God maturely. That's how we can live as grown-ups. That's how we can live in our walks with Jesus. And so like Abraham, we can believe God by faith as that faith is credited to us as righteousness and that we in turn will be called the friends of God, just like Abraham in James 2.23. That is the charge. This is your homework for this week, guys, is that you would pray and you would ask God to show where you're at in your stage with him. And that you, by his grace, will be sensitive to his spirit and his voice and his promptings as he deals with you and and the relationship you share with him. That's what I want you to do. I want you to pray and seek God in this. Because I know for a fact, personally, I am nowhere near as being a father. Nowhere near but I'm excited to see what God will do as I come before him and experience his grace, his goodness, and his mercy. So 
With that, just like to bow your heads and we'll close in a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the examples that are set out there before us within the scriptures. Thank you that you're a God who invites us to know you, to know you personally, to experience you personally, to interact with you personally. And I thank you for your grace and your mercy that reaches out to us to draw us closer to yourself. I pray that as we leave here today, you might prompt our hearts to seek you above all else, to seek first your kingdom so that all other things might be added to us and that we might grow from where we are now to experience the fullness of of all that you have and all that you have given us in your son, Jesus Christ. So we commit ourselves to you now and ask for you to dismiss us and to continue this wonderful work of grace that you have started in each of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.